Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. In Marie-Helene Bertino's latest novel, Beautyland, her protagonist, Adina Giorno, is a young woman growing up in Northeast Philadelphia. She also just happens to believe that she is an alien. Born to a human mother and with imagined ties to the astronomer Carl Sagan, Adina sets about learning as much as she can of human life sending missives back to her people via an aging fax machine in which she describes television programs, restaurant work, strained experiences with the opposite sex, and the quotidian details that make up the beautiful quirkiness of life. In Marie-Helene's hands, Adina's alienness becomes a means of shaking us out of our habitual ways of viewing the world, reviving our sense of wonder and sometimes terror at the glorious chaos of human existence. Adina struggles to fit in with teenager friends. She finds joys and disappointments in her studies in high school and college. She experiences the fatigue and satisfaction of hard, sometimes pointless work, and each day she reflects on the culture and society of human life. In many ways, she is the best of us capable of learning from mistakes and contemplating on what makes a life worthwhile, aware of her tenderness and openness to pain and rejection. Her extraterrestrial nature is not what makes her exceptional, for Adina looks to earthlings like one of their own. It is her willingness to examine her vulnerabilities and strengths, to live life in a way that is never routine, that treasures small daily experiences of the body and mind, as though they were galactic wonders. Would that we were all aliens like Adina. Marie-Helene Bertino is the author of the novels Parakeet, 
which was a New York Times editor's choice, and 2 a.m. at the Cat's Pajamas, one of NPR's best books of 2014, and the short story collection Safe as Houses, winner of the Iowa Short Fiction Award. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Electric Literature, Tin House, McSweeney's, and elsewhere. She has been awarded the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Fellowship in Cork, Ireland, the O. Henry Prize, the Pushcart Prize, and fellowships from McDowell, Hedgebrook Writers' Colony, the Center for Fiction in New York City, and Sewanee Writers' Conference. She currently teaches in the Creative Writing Program at Yale University. Welcome to the show, Marie Helene. Thank you so much, Chris. It's my pleasure to be here. I want to start by saying, let's begin with the proposition that Adina is an alien. This is not a foregone fact about the novel, but we can talk about that in a second. What was appealing about an alien narrator for this coming-of-age story? Adina's position as an extraterrestrial gave her what I felt was the correct perspective from which to see human society and human life, you know, far enough away so that she could observe it and process it and take the role of a reporter. And that's a stand-in for the writer or anyone who is forced to society's margins and I think from there has the right vantage point to really, really see it for what it is. Adina uses a, a discarded fax machine to send messages about earthlings to her people. I want to hear a little bit about how you decided that this would be the means of their communication and, uh, uh, and something more about what were the things you really wanted Adina to pass back, in, as, as you say, in her reporting to her alien brethren. Sure. The fax machine had a few different origin points, I would say. First, my mother, like Adina's mother, liked to find treasures that other people had circled out and would rescue them and give them a second life. So many things in our home were repurposed in that way. But my mom would often take something out of the garbage and turn it into something beautiful that was not necessarily its intended purpose. So one of my favorite things that she repurposed was she took a rowboat out of someone's garbage and she turned it into a, a lily pad pond. And so she had this tremendous knack of seeing through what something actually was into what it could be. And I was thinking about that when I was considering what Adina could use to communicate with what she believes is her extraterrestrial superiors. Hmm. And then, you know, I did a lot of research into Carl Sagan's work <clears throat> to write Beautyland. And one of the, the amazing things he said was th that we are galactical newbies on hmm. the Earth. And if extraterrestrials ever did come to visit us, in his words, they would have to speak very slow. <laughs> so the fax machine was a way of poking fun at that 
in addition to using well, that's that, perfect that slow, wide slow communication technology exactly and the obsolete technology the rapidly obsolete technology in adidas lifetime of the fax machine i loved the idea of using something that we would consider to be rudimentary now to do something as complicated as report on human beings to you know a, a people far far away yeah and it and it it harkens back to the way in which you know the fax machine in its in its dawning age um, was a wonder. It seemed mm -hmm. to be able to pass messages across space and time. And so, why wouldn't it? If we were you know living in the eighties, why wouldn't it be the perfect thing to speak to an alien species? I agree. And also, it's very fun looking. It has big buttons and it makes big, important sounds, which which was useful <laughs> when I was imagining a demon's world. And it also points to the fact that at one point, like you said, the fax machine was really technologically superior. And mm -hmm. what is it now that we feel is technologically superior that one day, you know, we will also scoff at? And it just points to kind of the... Um, well, the ongoing nature of time and and how relative things like that are. I can guarantee my children and and their children um, will be laughing about emails like sooner <laughs> rather than later. I it think already. They, they, yeah, I think they already are. Aren't they already? Yeah, I don't. I know you teach it at Yale, and 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 at least where I teach, getting students to even pay attention to an email is like getting <laughs> them to pay attention to a fax machine. So, <laughs> I think my students are also probably horrified by the fact that I hand write their notes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a relic. I, I'm just a, a hopeless relic. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. Uh, when I think of Adina. I think of how detached I felt from my life, especially as a teenager. This is where my strong sense of her as, you know, if, if we're thinking of her as alien and not alien, but as alienated comes from. Mm -hmm. Adina is experiencing life as, as many of us do at certain key times, as strangers in our own strange land. Would you Talk with me about how alienation comes into play in your notion of an alien being. Well, alienation would refer to, I suppose, Adina's positioning in and among other humans. And I feel like, especially as she grows up, I liked the idea. The metaphor was useful to me to have her feel like the disconnectedness that she was experiencing was as big as the universe. Hmm. Because as you mentioned, I mean, that's the way we feel when we're growing up, when we are in tender, vulnerable situations like being in love or wanting to impress a friend or not understanding why our parents are going hard on us. In all sorts of vulnerable moments, where our desires are exposed, we feel that our pain is unrivaled, unparalleled, has no equal, and takes up the entire world, and in Adina's case, the entire universe. So, so often with speculative fiction, in fact, I would say almost all the time, it sets up 
a, a relationship. So if this is like this, that implies this. And Adina's extraness, her the fact that she is extra to the terrain, creates this this nice echo with the situation of feeling totally exposed and tender and that it comprises the whole world. Like there is no one on mm. earth who doesn't feel how terrible I am or how ill-suited to this job or how ugly or dumb or whatever. All of the her sad moments, I deliberately connected to advancements in extraterrestrial knowledge, um, advancements in NASA, uh, advancements in what we knew or had discovered about our galaxy because that felt that felt um as accurately big as her feelings would feel to her and that felt so true i have a teenager <laughs> and it felt <laughs> so so true especially to my sense of a, a teenager's emotional life and how you've described it there i think is is perfect because as adults, we don't quite remember the intensity of that sense of like galactic feeling, like the world of feeling sits upon us. Mm -hmm. um, and so we look at teenagers and we're like, why are they so upset? They're so, so overdone about this. But the way you describe it is just right. It's like um, the whole universe is feeling alongside me or feeling towards me something. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment when Adina is walking home from a supreme disappointment at the hands of some mean girls when she's in the seventh grade. And she imagines that even the Hubble telescope, hmm. you know, so many miles above Earth, can see her in her shame as she's walking. Yeah, and I think that's some of point. I think that, like, actually, I would say, like, a writer's job is to kind of remember and honor those feelings. And, and I think we probably all have those moments that, that, that kind of can't be, that we, that we kind of can't grow calluses over, that mm -hmm. still when we mm -hmm. think of them, we feel, oh God, I was, that moment was just so, so hard. And I, I wanted to uncover those moments for her. <laughs> You, you referenced uh, speculative fiction, and that brings me to my question about the genre of this book, which I love because it is slippery and, and mysterious. I wouldn't call Beautyland science fiction. Um, I might call it science fiction curious or, as, or to use your term, speculative fiction. Um, and there are very, very few tropes of, of that genre. And I have... Um, I have with other books described this as like a Jenga game of genre in which you remove just about every recognizable trope of that genre and see if you can still make it do some of the magical things that a genre promises. So I wonder how you think of the genre of, of beauty land and what is useful about the, the tropes and, um, observable features of something like speculative fiction or science fiction curious. <laughs> I like that. Science fiction curious. Um, well, before I, I, I 
will be delighted to talk about all of this. I'd love to hear what you maybe think of when you are thinking of these tropes out of curiosity. So something like being transported into it's called the night classroom. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Or the yeah. So when Nadina is transported, uh, you know, uh, at least imaginatively into this night classroom in which she can commune with her alien, her alien people. I think I would think of that as as um, science fictiony, and then the use of technology. I mean, it reminded me, and you even I think call out ET in, in the novel, but it reminded me of the old record player that's hooked up to um, you know to communicate with ET's spaceship, the fax machine operating as an extra um, technology from what it's supposed to be able to do. That reminded me of tropes of science fiction. And then just, you know, I thought a lot of Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land and what does an alien, how does an alien being respond to Earth? So those were the, you know, this, the slight kind of tropes of not hard science fiction, but speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad I asked. I love all of those things so much. Um, yeah, I think that speculative fiction for me, has always enabled me to speak as directly as I've wanted to about how I feel it is to be here. And no novel more directly than with Beautyland. And thinking of a simple concept, I mean, simple in in my estimation, you know, a girl who feels like she doesn't belong on Earth a fax machine, a single mother, eventually a dog, a best friend, and a city. I I thought from that I could kind of crack being able to talk about every single thing on earth, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is what I wanted to do. Um, and it's interesting, and this is something I'm only recently talking through with myself, so forgive me if this is really a clumsy way of describing it, but I was thinking about how when I have brought people home to meet my mom, very often my mother ends up speaking to them more freely than she does with me or my brothers. And it's it's funny. It's a joke. You know, I, I get to hear stories of her childhood when I bring someone else home. And I was thinking about how the friend I bring home is both me me enough so that she can feel comfortable, but not me enough that it's like speaking, it's not speaking to her daughter. And that allows her to speak more freely and feel and feel at ease and, and, and willing to share. And that is what I'm able to do by skewing normally one big thing about the quote unquote real world. So I take one thing about the quote-unquote real world and I, I flip it. So in Beautyland's case, she's an extraterrestrial and she's faxing notes on humans. And it allows me to speak as freely as I want to because without that supernatural conceit, it wouldn't work. Hmm. And that is what speculative is able to provide for me at least. And some of my examples when I teach this and when I was learning this and trying to explain it to myself 
was uh, the movie Edward Scissorhands, because what made Edward Scissorhands different were was something that was considered to be a disability by society, but was also how he was able to create beautiful sculptures and how he was created, how he was able to create um, bouffant hairdos that that at first delighted the members of this pastel suburban utopia. Um, but eventually, a trope in speculative and science fiction is that the society then turns on the person who is different, and the person who is different again becomes exiled and alone. And so I deliberately looked at tropes of alien stories and science fiction stories and monster stories to build Beautyland um, and, and to know what I was in conversation with when I was building Adina and her eventual journey. And so she literally makes a list of everything she learns about aliens from American movies. And a lot of what mm -hmm. I just mentioned is on there. <laughs> <laughs> That's so well described. I, I love that. One, one of the things that makes uh, Adina such a perfect narrator for the things you're trying to do is just that she pays such good attention to things in the culture and in specific venues that might otherwise fade into the background of a, of a novel's breadth of vision or an ordinary life's daily experience. Beautyland is a treasure trove of cultural references to food and TV and slang and music of the time period. What did you love having Adina notice and describe, and what was important for you to preserve in the form of literature? You know, I think that I have been in a so far four book argument with what is allowed to be literature mm. and what is considered not quote unquote high literature. And I think that everything you just mentioned and all the cultural references you mentioned and the slang and the neighborhood, Northeast Philadelphia, are things that ha that are at one time things that I thought were excluded from what I was allowed to be writing about if what I wanted to be writing was serious literature, in quotes. And so where she lives and her single mother and what she decides to include and the fact that her life is arguably a simple one. I think that I, 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 I built these things deliberately to say this is significant too. She is also not affluent at all. Class is a very big deal um, in, the, in the novel in that it is visible. It's hyper visible. It's talked about and it matters. And that is another thing that I just haven't seen enough of on the page. And so this was really my opportunity to include what I thought was significant. But that's, you know, that's really no different from any other author who I hope is always including what they find to be significant about life or, or their characters' lives. Um, in this way, it was just a little more remarked upon in a meta way throughout the novel. Yes, and and but I think you may be on to something in that I think some people do some filtering 
when they think of the things that they care about and want to preserve and want to represent, and they think, oh, this doesn't belong in the space of, of literature. Mm-hmm. And I might even take up the, the idea of Northeast Philly for a second, which is a um, I love a Philly book. You know, Philadelphia features much in my imagination. And, you know, in comparison to New York or, or L.A., it's a, it, it gets second-class status in, in literature often, I think. Mm-hmm. And Northeast Philly in particular doesn't get a lot of love in fiction. <laughs> um, and I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the importance of the specificity of place. I mean, we moved to New York in the, in the novel, but um, those... Uh, the, the early sections in Philly in the 80s and 90s, what was important about that specificity of place? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I Recently, I heard someone call Philadelphia a second city, which was the first time I had heard that phrase. Um, this person was not from Philadelphia. And I was like, oh, I've never heard that phrase before. Have you used that in Philadelphia to other Philadelphians, and, and it's not that I please, please be around when you do. <laughs> yeah, I want to be there too. <laughs> yeah, I would really, really like to be there when you use that phrase. They would, um, they would take it so affectionately. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're they're normally muted, remote people very uh, very don't yes. react definitely yeah. very much like minnesota and canada there in <laughs> philadelphia i would never want to speak for for wonderful people in minnesota or canada but philadelphia sports fans for example are not <laughs> known, are not known to be uh i don't know are not known to under function for one but um <laughs> but yeah so i anytime i have caught myself thinking but that is not, but that can't work in fiction. I've hoped that I've stopped to say, but why do I feel that way? And tracing the origins of why I believe what I believe regarding the writing of fiction has been massively important for being creatively new with, with hopefully with every project um, and for continuing to challenge myself to explore new terrain creatively. And the, when I do trace the origins back, it's normally to either academic programs or what I've you know heard around or, or what gets published in certain places. And I realized that if I kept writing the way I write, that I might, you know, forever be banished from those places. This is something that I have reckoned with and that I know deeply is true. And also, you know, my experience is 100% of my experience and I can write in no other way. It's just not possible for me, nor do I want to. It's just too much fun and it just seems infinitely productive to me. So I, I do agree that people put sometimes put their fiction through filters to belong to a you know particular school of thought or to get into a particular magazine and i i very much have sympathy for that point of view because i know that in many cases they are probably correct but i i encourage my or i should say and 
I encourage anyone to ask themselves why they believe what they believe and at least attempt to write what is truly and specifically theirs and see if their work doesn't just become unignorable. Many of the lessons that Adina gleans from her life on Earth could loosely fall into the category of gender ideology. In, in section one of the book, the narration notes that if Adina, quote, believed television fathers, women were a constant pain, wanted red roses and a nice dinner. If she learned how to be a girl from songs, it was worse. If she learned from other girls, worse still. Far from being an alien problem, this is maybe the quintessential experience of young women in the United States, constant messages of their failure to be the correct object of a certain pervasive gaze. How does Adina's experience square up with your sense of the lessons that young women are constantly learning from peers and the culture at large? I'll speak for my own experience, but conservative and heteronormative ideas of gender were very, very loud when I was growing up. I also come from a pretty conservative and traditional religion and culture, Roman Catholicism. And it was a tremendous relief to grow up and realize that I can have my own relationship to all of these things and that it was not only perfectly fine, it was super fun and really liberating. <laughs> mm. And I think that what I learned, so where I came from is present in Adina's childhood. And where I eventually went and hopefully am still going is present in her superiors who occur to her in what she experiences as the singular plural, a multi-souled, multi-personed unit of singularity. Um, her people have evolved past the body. And so she experiences them as, you know, feelings and vibration and sound. And I, I just loved the idea that they had evolved past the constraints and sometimes the tremendous pain of a body. And I think that gender, I think my, my own thinking about gender is wrapped up in there. And I, you know, I'm just really grateful that, because, you know, like you, I am a member of Generation X, and I'm really, really grateful for the generations, whatever letters they have been that have come after us, who have been giving us all of this beautiful and expansive language so that we can understand ourselves better throughout time. And so the, they are changing language. They have changed language. They are building in expansiveness to what many people falsely assume were rigid and inflexible ideas. And I, I for one, think it's tremendously exciting. <laughs> mm, me too. Uh, one of the things I loved about spending time with Adina was learning about the things that she was preternaturally good at in her life on Earth. Things like acting, where she's a natural and unaffected in the way that um, takes her teacher aback and lands her the narrator role in Our Town. 
I did, just as an aside, find it amazing that two major novels of the last six months had Our Town as like a feature of them, uh, with Tom Lake being the other one. But I, I thought that was so interesting. But she's also so capable in other things, like her, her waitressing job at the Red Lion, where the details and order of the job bring her a great deal of satisfaction. What does her alien skill set or view of life bring to the strengths that you give her in the novel? I think that Adina is a meticulous lover of order. And oddly, both of those vocations that you mentioned, waitressing and acting, can utilize those traits. I think I was never, I do, I did have a theater background, though I was never good. <laughs> I was never good, period. I was just never good. I, but there was, there was another path in my life that would have led to directing theater, which I loved very much. And I don't know why Adina is good at acting, perhaps because I, I was terrible at it. I do think that she finds a quiet space on the stage. And I think because of her misophonia, because of her aversion to sound on earth, I think that the stage, kind of like Snowfall, can be a very silent and comforting space sometimes. Also, um, one thing that theater did do in my life is that when I was backstage, I was hearing a particular play performed over and over and over and over again. So I would be in the dark listening to a play in its entirety on repetition. <clears throat> And I think that I internalized the rhythms and the sounds of certain plays. And Our Town was one of them. I directed Our Town when I was in college. And it was useful for Beautyland because it had a reporter character, literally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought she would make a wonderful narrator. So I used it for that reason. And then the secondary reason is because it was a play I was deeply familiar with in the way that you are intrinsically familiar with a piece of work when you have to triple process it. So read it, understand it, and then render it on the stage in a way that you're able to explain to other people who you're trying to get to see the same vision that you're trying to see. So I, I loved using our town for that reason. Waitressing was something I was very good at. <laughs> I was very good at waitressing, and I am very proud of the fact that I was good at waitressing. And that was because I was orderly, efficient. I, like a drummer, I could kind of do four things at once. Um, I could turn tables. I, I was friendly when I was having a good day. And I could see the products, which I've always, I've always really loved anything where I could see the product. This table is happy. Their check is delivered. I can kind of rest for a moment. So I gave that to Adina because I thought she'd be good at it too, because it's something that I love. I love the idea that I can always fall back on waitressing. Mm. And because um, Adina is lower middle class, she is low income, she is under-resourced. And that is a job that I had growing up because I was the same. And I wanted to show that it could contain beauty and moments of joy. I did a lot of waitering, um, I think, probably in similar, similar places to Adina. 
Uh, and a lot of it was very recognizable to me. I, I loved that about the novel and especially her relationship to the, to the, the long timers, the, those who've been become experts, both tiring of it, but also able to have an expertise in it that is um, extraordinary. And the way in which they take to Adina, I really, really loved that aspect of it. And also, I happened to have been a waiter at a place that had a lot of uh, retirees. And the way that you that you depict the relationship to regulars who, who might be sort of senior citizens, I thought was so true to form in my own experience. Did you waiter at a diner? Uh, I know, but I, I waited at a, um, assisted living facility and then I waited at various kinds of like local, um, silly restaurants. <laughs> That's incredible that you're at an assisted living facility. Did you learn a lot from those peeps? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> they were like, they contained multitudes. And, you know, even the ones that I did not like and didn't like me taught me extraordinary, extraordinary things. And I'm, I think about it all the time. I think because you described it really well. There's something about when you're, when you're waiting tables, the attention that you have to give everything and everything all at once um, is different than a lot of other kinds of work or just being. And so I have very vivid memories, I don't know about you, of just moments of doing it. Mm -hmm. I know that you're interviewing me. That said, I would love to know <laughs> what if you can remember anything that you learned from the folks you waited on in the assisted living, even if it seems small. So there was this guy who happened to be the um, father of uh, a famous a famous American actor, and the actor would occasionally come in and dine with him, which was everyone would be all a titter about it. But he was paid such careful attention to the waitstaff, who were all high school students for the most part. And he noticed that I, you know, was head over heels in love with this other, with this waitress there and just, and she had no interest in me. And he would tell me, don't worry. He would say, don't worry, kid. Like you, you will, there will come a time in your life in which, you know, people will pay attention to you in the way that you're paying attention to her. Wow. And at the and I couldn't quite hear it at the time, but his voice stayed in my head. Um, and, you know, I didn't get it, uh, a chance to tell him that he was, you know, right and that he had a wisdom that I really needed at that time. But I wish I had. That is incredible because they can see it so clearly. I mean, I, I don't want to assume that he was toward the end of his life. He, but he, he was. He was he was rounding it. Yeah. He was, yeah, coming into the twilight. From that vantage point, you can just see so many things so clearly. It's probably like so easy to see a young kid waiter, you know, enamored with another waitress and, and, and see like someday that kid is going to have everything he wants and he probably doesn't realize it now mm -hmm. because he would. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why I went into end of life facilitation because I feel like you can learn so much now or, or at whatever point you are from the end of life, from end of life. 
And it just it just bears out over and over again in all those cool ways. He really Was did that, you a favor. He did. He absolutely did. And is that why you wanted to end the, you know, have the last section be uh, titled Death and have it be a a kind of clarifying moment for Adina? That was part of it, absolutely. Also because, you know, the book borrowed its structure from the life and death stages of a star. Mm. And the last stage of a star is black hole. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I was going to say supernova, and but I'm glad that you, that you remembered. <laughs> um, <laughs> As we all know, the last stage of a star yes, clearly, is clearly we know is black hole, and I mean, it, but it also makes so much sense because Adina was here, is here to report on human life, and that would that includes death, and the and the resistance to looking at end of life, and the resistance to looking at death, you know, is a is a massive problem and one that Adina would not have. Because she has that matter-of-fact gaze and because she has that life-defining vocation, Adina is a character who is absolutely built from devotion to her vocation. And so she would take it very seriously to not looking away, to not look away from death, but to study it and observe it and eventually notate about it. Well, uh, before I let you go, I would love to know what you've been reading and loving recently and whether you have any recommendations for, for my listeners. Oh, sure. Let's see. Right, right now, I'm reading a book that is going to come out in March called The Morning Side, written by the marvelous and brilliant Taya Abrett. And I am a few chapters in but it's making me so happy. She is the author of Tiger's Wife, which is one of my favorite novels of all time, like a novel that I could just give to anyone and have. And she lived in Ithaca for for quite a bit of time, too. So she I, I feel cool. like she's a, a local. <laughs> she's local. She's a relative local, <laughs> um, as we all are. And and I'm always re I'm I'm normally reading two or three things at the same time. I'm reading Root Fractures, which is a collection of poems by the poet Diana Coy Wynn. And I find her to be utterly brilliant and inspirational. So those are the two, the two books I'm reading now. Well, I didn't know about Taya Obrecht's um, new book, so I'm very excited for that. Um, and I, I don't know Root Fractures, and, and I'm sure people will be excited to have a new poetry recommendation. But most of all, I want to recommend Beautyland by Marie-Helene Bertino. I like it's that just, one, too. Yeah, that one's good. It's good. I need that one <laughs> and, a little it is um, such a wonderful and affecting and beautiful story of life of all kinds, and I can't recommend it enough. And it was such a pleasure to get to speak with you about it, Marie-Helene. Thank you, Chris. It's been a long time since we talked, but I love talking to you, and I hope we get to do it again soon. Me too. Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to Marie-Helene Bertino for coming on to talk about her latest transformative novel, Beautyland. 
You can find links to purchase Beautyland and all of Marie Helene's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Thank you.